Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29 and extending all the way to verse 39. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. This is God's Word. And immediately he, that is Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we now take a few minutes in your word to hear from this very text, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. We ask that he would guide us into the way of all truth, that we would find our hearts centered upon those things which are good and right and true and beautiful. And in hearing those things, knowing those things, we might have a true and lasting encounter with you. Come and hear this prayer and meet us, we now ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know you're as excited as me about the fact that baseball is back in session and that um, the Cubs are first place in the National League. I won't spend too long on that for our Cardinals fans in here. Um, I know that's painful to hear. Of course, you'll remind me that there's plenty of baseball left to play. That is true. There's a good bit uh, still before us, so I'm not counting my chickens before they hatch, so to speak. But I tell you, the best part about this season is not necessarily that the Cubs are in first place. It's that my boys are out on the baseball field. That's been fun to watch again. Yesterday, Luke had a big game at the plate. It's a lot of fun to see him round those bases. I found myself sitting right behind home plate, sometimes venturing uh, there into the uh, dugout, just reminding him of one of the most fundamental aspects of standing at the plate and hitting the baseball, and that is to keep your eye on the ball, to keep your eye on the ball. There's a lot of ways you can go wrong at the plate in terms of hitting the baseball, but one thing's for sure, if you don't keep your eye on the ball, you are not going to hit the baseball. It is fundamental to the work of hitting. 
Now that little phrase, keeping your eye on the ball, is become a kind of metaphor for um, leadership gurus, for organizations, for uh, so many over uh, various spheres of life to describe the importance of remembering vision and mission. Uh, We must keep our eye on what it is that we are called to do, to not lose sight or to lose focus, to become distracted over the many things that we might be about, we could be doing, but instead we must return over and over to our vision and to our mission. What is it that this organization, this company, this person, this group of people, what is it that they are called to do? They must keep their eye on the ball. As we look at Mark chapter 1 this morning and this section in Jesus' ministry, just one single day, in fact, the very first of the days of his ministry, he's going to have many of these days. It's a long day, a day where he went and he preached that morning and a demon came forward and he cast out the demon and then retired to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house where we find out that she is sick and he heals her and then the word about Jesus spreads everywhere and people start tearing down the door to meet with him, bringing all of their sick, bringing all of their demon-possessed and we're told here in the text that he stood there healing many of them. This is a tremendous day of ministry success. We might say he kept his eye on the ball. He stayed in the saddle of that which he had come to do, which was to cast out darkness, sin, and death, and to establish a kingdom of light and life, to push back the effects of the curse of sin, and to begin to instill the realities of mercy and grace and peace and love, which are the foundation stones of his kingdom. We might say to ourselves that Jesus, as we look at his first day in ministry, he has kept his eye on the ball. But I'd like to suggest to you he's also recognizing at this very early stage in his ministry a temptation that every one of us face. And that is the temptation for mission drift. The temptation for mission drift. When we look at this text together, I actually think that what we're seeing Jesus know, what his disciples don't see, what the crowds wouldn't know, is that there are unsaid but very real, in Mark's writing of this section in the gospel, very real pressures externally that Jesus is facing to not keep his eye on the ball, to focus upon something that is akin to his ministry but not the center of his ministry, not the reason for which he came. And in fact, the passage closes with this statement of crystal clear vision and mission. Let's go to the next towns and to preach to them also. For that is why, there's the question of why, mission and vision, that is why I came out. He's telling you, very straightforward, here's my purpose. Here's my mission. And he had to go through a process to remember that. To be restored to that, to be renewed in that, to be awakened to that. I think we see two things in this text related to this very reality as we watch Jesus stay on mission. We see the reality of temptation to mission drift. And then we also see a pattern or a process for mission renewal. A pattern and a process for mission uh, renewal. 
Now, why do I uh, say that there's a temptation to mission drift? Well, it's, it's really hinted at in the text. I don't think it's sitting there for you to say, oh yeah, Jesus, as it were, is losing his way. We, we think I, we probably know better than to speak in such a manner because Jesus is perfect. He's, he's absolutely righteous. He does not sin. He does not fall short. And yet we know that he experiences real temptations. His temptations don't come from within him, like you and I. Our temptations often come because of our fallen nature. We wake up in the morning and we lose our way before we get started. Because there's an internal drive to do things that are not that which we have been called to do. Jesus didn't experience it in that way. But he had temptations from the outside that appealed to him to take an alternate course than the mission that the Father has laid out to him. And the reason we see this and we see these temptations come is how we see Jesus respond. It's so clearly in Jesus' response to the text that he's fighting at or he's warring against those things that would have alternate missions for him. It's hinted at there in this theme of wilderness that shows up again in the text. Did you notice that theme of wilderness? Look there in verse 35. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. Now that word desolate place is the same word that's used of wilderness in verse 12 here in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus was baptized, his first public de declaration of who he is and what it is he's come to do. And we're told immediately the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness. Could also be translated a desolate place. Now if you look at Capernaum in Jesus' day in the first century, here's what's kind of fascinating. There is no wilderness. <laughs> there is no really desolate place there. If you go back and look at the context and the socio-geographical um, realities there in Capernaum, is it was a thriving um, plot of land with many villages. Not necessarily a large metropolitan area, but many villages in close proximity to one another. There, weren't, there wasn't so much a wilderness or what we might call a wasteland, which is what we tend to think of when we think of a wilderness. And so we might ask ourselves this question. Why is Mark using the language of wilderness to describe where Jesus went? Why is he referring to it as a desolate place? Well, I'd like to note the fact that Mark only uses this word four times in the entirety of his gospel. And he uses it three times here in chapter 1. He uses it in verse 12 to describe the initial wilderness, as it were, him identifying with the people of God in their wilderness wanderings from the Old Testament, having come through the waters of baptism, he now wanders, as it were, in the wilderness under temptation, and he is strong under that temptation and is victorious, and now he is entering into a conquest of his kingdom, which is exactly what the people of Israel did in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua. As they crossed over the Jordan River out of the wilderness and began to take conquest, as it were, Jesus is doing a very similar thing here in the Gospel of Mark. And so there's this, there's this picture of this wilderness theme that Mark introduces the whole of his gospel with. Now, the second time we see it used is right here in verse 35, okay, desolate places. The next time, if you've got your Bibles open, you can actually look down to verse 45, and you'll see after he heals the leper in the next passage, he can no longer go into the cities 
or into those thriving villages because his popularity is too great. The mobs will just get him. And so he now has to labor in the desolate places, is what it says. So same language is there. The next place is in Mark 6. And this is where his disciples go out on their first ministry tour. He sends them out, and we read in the other Gospels, they're wildly successful. They saw, you know, Jesus sees Satan fall like lightning as they go and cast out demons, and they heal in Jesus' name. And they come back with all these reports of ministry success, and Jesus says, yeah, 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 let's go away to a desolate place. Let's go away to the wilderness. Now, here's what's interesting. Why don't I tell you all of that with regards to the use of the gospel of Mark? There's a wilderness theme in Mark. And the wilderness, as it's marked here in chapter 1, is the place that Jesus goes to remember what he's been called to do. It's the place that he goes to remember what he's been called to do. The initial wilderness is that he's been declared by his father as the son in whom he is well pleased. And he's sent, he's driven, right, by the Spirit out in the wilderness. He's on mission. The Spirit is driving him to go on the mission. He's tested and he's tried by the evil one himself and he's victorious. He's fulfilling his mission. The first obstacle is down. But throughout the Gospel of Mark, he will go to the wilderness and each time he goes, he goes personally there. Or he brings his disciples with him there in order to renew their mission. To remember why it is that they've come. Now here's why this is very interesting. Notice in each of those instances what drives him into the wilderness. The day before, he's had radical success. Radical success. His approval ratings are through the roof. People love him. Everywhere he goes, they mob him. And in each of those instances, what does he do? He departs from them. And he goes to the wilderness. On the heels of success, where everything seems to be going right, Jesus removes himself to the wilderness. Now, I read a few years ago a book by Peter Greer and Chris Horst that's called Mission Drift, the Unspoken Crisis that Faces leaders and churches and charities and many different organizations. The book does a lot of research on why organizations, um, he uses the Pew Charitable Trust, for instance, uh, lose their way and their founding principles don't seem to carry them through and sustain them lastingly. And he notes this true of churches, he notes this true of denominations and nonprofits and many others. Now, one of the things that's real interesting about the book is it notes that all organizations, no matter who they are, whether they're businesses or nonprofits or churches or groups of people, all organizations experience mission drift. Everybody they study experience times where they just kind of get off focus from what they're called to do. Now, this is obvious, this should become very obvious to all of us, is that organizations, as we like to speak of them, they're like this third entity out there. Like they're this, they have their own identity and culture and reality, and that's in some sense true. But what are organizations? Just, what are they? They're people. Have you noticed that you lose your way from time to time? Well, guess what? Groups of people lose their way from time to time, too. 
No matter how organized they are, no matter how orderly they are, all organizations in some way, shape, or form will experience some measure of mission drift. They notice that all boards, all leaders, no matter who it is that you are, will begin over time to lose what it is that they've been called to do. They also noted when we're most susceptible to lose our way. Isn't that interesting? In the book, they say one of the ways that we're most susceptible to lose our way is in seasons of success. Isn't that interesting? Now, it's not only then, but one of the leading ways. One of the leading times we lose our way. You know why? Because in success, we start making decisions thoughtlessly. We start making quicker decisions out of the sense that we've got this thing figured out. And slowly but surely, those small decisions compounded over time can make significant course direction decisions for the way in which an organization or a person uh, ultimately ends up. I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting with someone. Let's use an individual for, for a second. I'm sitting with someone and they say, you know, I committed adultery. I'm, I'm strung out on alcohol. I'm struggling with this or that. And they look at you and they go, and I don't know how I got here. And I don't know how it happened. Life seemed to be going so well. And, and then over time, these, this drift happened. And this is where I took my hands off the wheel. I took my eye off the ball. I became unguarded in the way that I lived. I wasn't intentional in the decisions to renew commitments with regards to identity and calling and mission. And what ultimately happens is I ended in destruction. I believe as Mark is writing here in Mark chapter 1, he's showing us the wild success of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the biggest thing that's ever happened in Capernaum. People are banging down his door to get him to come out. And notice his response. He leaves them. He withdraws. Let's go to the next town. That's what he says. Let's go to the next town. That I may continue to preach, for that is why it came out. Now, I would argue, from a human perspective, it makes no sense why Jesus says they should do that. I don't think Simon gets it at all in the text. He's completely confused. Everything's going for you. The momentum we've been looking for is here. And yet Jesus, in that moment, gets up really early in the morning, goes to a place where nobody can find him or bother him, so that he can get alone with his father and pray. And as Simon finds him and says, you know what, we're done here. We're moving on to the next place. For the reason I came out, my mission is to go preach the gospel. My mission is not merely to go heal physical diseases. To be a miracle worker that can t put band-aids on, on issues that will ultimately not save these people. I've come for a much deeper and more profound cause. And what you begin to see in the midst of this is that as he has facing temptation to mission drift, is not mission drifting himself, of course, but facing the reality of it as the crowds are coming to him, as Simon is coming to him, Jesus displays for us a pattern for mission renewal. That's the second thing that he gives us in the text. A pattern for mission renewal. Now, I want to do this very briefly because we don't have a lot of time this morning, but I want to give you... Two things that Jesus didn't do that are important to keep our eyes on the ball. Two things he didn't do that are really important for us because we often do these things. And they're not helpful. 
And they actually get as far from what it is the Lord's called us to. And then I want to look at two things Jesus did do that we often don't do that keeps him focused. So two things that he didn't do that we often do, two things he did do that we often don't do. That's what we want to look at when we look at this pattern of renewal. And the first thing I want you to see in this pattern of renewal is that Jesus didn't let success and the pressing needs of the crowds dictate his mission. That's very important. He did not let success and the pressing needs of the crowd dictate his mission. Now, I'm just going to put myself in Jesus' shoes for just a second because it helps me to sort of, sort of understand what would be the human proclivity in a circumstance like this. You've had a huge day. You've been wildly successful. You've brought in a lot of money. People have told you you've done a great job, whatever it is your job is or whatever it is your calling is. You, you've, you've laid down your head at night and you can rest easy and peacefully as if you've been a productive member of society and everybody's recognized it to be so. But then it dawns on you as your eyes open the next morning, wait, all of that work and people are still going to be there. And you're going to have to like do this whole thing over again. Right? You ever had this experience? You're like, oh, I've got to do this whole thing over again. Like that's now yesterday's news and it doesn't carry over until today's success. And so now I've got to go do it all uh, again. And so yesterday was huge, Jesus. Today could be bigger. People are expecting even bigger things. Where are you going to take it today? I guess I better get started. I guess I better get up early, jump on it, make a plan and a preparation. I did this, I did that. Um, in order to trump those things or to continue that momentum, I'm going to need to do this and I'm going to need to do that. And I know the crowds are going to be looking for this or that. This would be the mentality and the mindset that many of us actually carry into our day-to-day -day lives as we wake up or open up in the morning. But Jesus, you see, he leaves behind his public success in Capernaum and even notice the urgent needs of others to stay on mission. To stay on mission. To spend time alone with his father in prayer. That's staying on mission. <laughs> That's staying on mission. Spending time alone with his father in prayer. He breaks away. In fact, the way that it's written in the text, it's like, it's like an escape. <laughs> don't, you, don't you feel it? It's like he got up and he like looked out the tent, you know? Nobody's here. It's a great time to get away. You know, it's like, it's like a grand escape. He's going to disappear. He's got to get away from the people who are going to crowd in around him to dictate his daily schedule. And what we see Jesus doing, because we see as he arises out of his communion with the Lord, what does he have? Clarity about what he needs to do. And what I'd like to suggest is that he, by not letting success and the needs of the crowd dictate his mission... But instead, getting alone with his Father in prayer, we see clarity for mission arise out of deep communion with God. That's what we see happening here. Clarity for mission is arising out of deep communion with God. Now, I don't know what your crowd is, right? <laughs> your crowd may be your, your littles in your house. It may be the, the employees that you work around. I, I'm not sure what your, your crowd is. 
But there are plenty of people who have ideas about how you should be spending your time. And the question that I think the text is, is rising is, will God be the one who sets the agenda? Or will everybody else around you set it? Because they're pleased to. But are you so pleased to let him be the very center of your mission? Listen, time alone with God is never going to just show up. It's going to have to come from a place where you are intentional about shutting the door of the prayer closet. And no matter who is knocking on it, not opening it. That's one of the things that's remarkable about what Jesus is doing here. Is he's unwilling to listen at the chirping of the squeaky wheels all around him. To keep him away from his communion with the Lord. It really is in some ways an illustration, isn't it, of the Mary and Martha story. Whereas Martha busies herself getting ready for Jesus. And she's putting on quite the spread of hospitality. It's Mary that's sitting at his feet. And he looks at Martha and he says, Martha, you are anxious about so many things, but you know, notice the clarity of this vision. Only one thing is necessary. Only one thing is necessary. You see the clarity and the simplicity of the mission that is Jesus? I can almost guarantee you, if you feel scattered, distracted, spread thin, of not knowing where to go, what to do with your life, it's probably because you have lost that sense of vision. You've probably lost that sense of, of mission. You've probably forgotten the one thing that's necessary. Alone with God in deep communion. Here's the second thing. Jesus, not only did he um, resist uh, the, the public success and being wooed by the demands of the crowd, but secondly, he was willing to disappoint others and be misunderstood. Isn't this interesting? These are the things we won't do very often, but he, he does. He's willing to disappoint others and be misunderstood. When Simon Peter shows up, and he says those words in verse 37, everyone is looking for you. Now don't hear that as a statement. Hear that as an indictment. Hey, Jesus. Hey, bud. Like, chop, chop. Like, this is a huge day. Like, everybody's coming to the door, man. I mean, like... Why are you way out here in the middle of nowhere doing who knows what when we've got all of this opportunity sitting here waiting at your door? You know, I mean, that's the spirit of, of Peter's um, words here. Now, I want you to hear in that is that Peter has an assumption about Jesus' mission. He has an assumption about Jesus' mission, about what he should be about. He's coming to him with a sense this is how you should be living your life. And he doesn't make sense what the way in which you're living, what it is you're doing. So Jesus in this moment is actually being challenged to decide, will he listen to Simon Peter or will he listen to the communion of his father? Now, this is not the last time Simon Peter is going to be, as it were, a temptation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, you remember in the middle of the, of the Gospel of Mark, just as we see it in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, when, he is, when, when Peter comes to Jesus and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you that you have seen this, that you know this. Uh, Peter then responds, then Peter says, you know, 
we need to get on with the mission. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up to the scribes and the Pharisees, and I'm going to die is what's going to happen. And Peter says, forbid it, Lord. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter had a vision for Jesus' mission. You see, but Peter thought that Jesus was going to be a political ruler. That he had come to establish or reestablish the people of Israel as a beautiful uh, political entity that was going to put all of their enemies underneath their, their boot, so to speak. And so he acts, doesn't he, like a campaign manager. Let's, let's, stay on, let's stay on track. We've got money to raise. We've got things to do. Don't you realize, like, you know, uh, CNN and Fox News, and everybody's going to be there, and they're going to be talking about this particular event, and here you are out in the middle of nowhere. It's like you're not capitalizing on really where the success of the mission is. And Jesus is saying, you know, mo contraire, mo frere. I am on mission right here because I am more interested in pleasing my Father than pleasing men. I'm more interested in prioritizing what my Father prioritizes than what men say my schedule should prioritize. I am willing to disappoint others and be misunderstood in order to beat to the tune of the drum of my Heavenly Father. Okay? So we see Jesus doing two things I think are very hard for us, but are very important to stay on task. Not let the pressure of the crowds and the pressures of the responsibilities, nor uh, let disappointment of others and being misunderstood by others uh, keep us from doing what it is that we know we're called to do. And for some of us, that's going to be extremely difficult, right? We don't want to have anybody disappointed. In fact, we think of our mission as making everybody happy or making everybody pleased, which the Bible never tells you that's your mission. Um, it says, please the Father. Walk according to the Lord. And what that means is a lot of times you're going to make decisions that are going to be confusing to others. They're not going to understand why it is. You choose to not do this, but you choose to do this. And that's going to sometimes cause disagreements. It's going to cause frustrations as it does within the disciples regarding Jesus. Jesus is willing to face that and continue to stay on mission. But here I want you to see thirdly and positively. Notice what Jesus does. He determines to get alone with his father no matter what. He determines to get alone with his father no matter what. I really love the way verse 35 reads. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. It literally means while there was a great amount of dark still left. We could translate it that way. Meaning like it's in the middle of the night he leaves, but it's early morning. And as he does so, he does, in order to be under the cloak of darkness, he doesn't want anybody to see him. Ultimately, he doesn't want anybody to know where he's gone because he doesn't want anybody to bother him. He is prioritizing his solitude and his time with God over everything else. Now, what I want you to see in this is that he was, what I would like to call, a, he is giving to us a creative strategy for communion with God. A creative strategy for communion with God. He's going to great lengths to be sure that he will not be bothered. And he's still bothered. We're going to see that a couple of times in the Gospel of Mark. That's actually going to be encouraging to some of us in here who are constantly bothered every time we try to get alone with the Lord. You're going to see that Jesus dealt with that with regards to his own father. But I want you to see the great links with Jesus who determined to plan an escape, to disappear, 
um, to, to, to do whatever it took to get into the presence of his father. This is what he prioritized. This is what he looked to. He understood this as essential to the work of his mission. We've got to remember because in the back of our minds, we have Jesus as a little bit like Superman. He's a little bit like a, a, a superhero. He doesn't really need the stuff that you and I need, you know? He, he really, he's God in human flesh, but he's really more God than, than human. He's really not that needy. That's not the way the Bible presents him at all, does it? It presents him as a man who's like men, who's needy like men. He needs food. He needs drink. He needs his father. He needs his father. Now, I'm just going to like propose something. If Jesus, who is perfect in God, needs his father in prayer and has to get up very early in the morning, even while it's dark, to spend time with him in order to answer the rest of his day's mission, that we who are sinful and lost and easily stray might also need to do the same. Might also need to do the same. Now, here, here, now listen to me. You go, Nate, you don't know my schedule. I don't know your schedule. But let me ask you this. Was it busier than Jesus's? Let that settle on you. Now let's think of his Sabbath day. His day of rest was this day. Casting out demons. Healing people. Preaching. Into the night. I, I'm just telling you. I would say, get an extra hour of sleep, Jesus. That's what I would say. Get an extra hour of sleep. It's worth it. You deserve it. I mean, you've put in the effort. Jesus gets up earlier than normal, it appears, to go out and spend time uh, with his heavenly Father. What, in a sense, is it saying to us? It's saying to us that Jesus knows where real rest is found. How many times have you gotten that extra hour of sleep and felt more rested? A lot of times you don't, do you? Because a lot of times the rest that we need is not physical. The rest that we need is spiritual. The rest that we need is mental and emotional and relational. We need time to unburden the things we ought not be carrying to the only one who can carry them. No amount of physical sleep is ever going to restore that. You're going to need that time alone to unburden with the Lord. It's as if Jesus himself knows that physical rest is not going to be the cure. It's going to be time with his Father that's going to uphold him and strengthen him. And keep him, as it were, on track. He's determined to be with his father no matter what it takes. And fourthly and finally, it's this. When alone with God, notice this about Jesus. And I think he challenges us in this. Pray until you meet God. Now, I'm making a distinction there. When you're alone with God, pray until you meet God. I just think it's so important that we see Jesus is praying in this text. He's praying in this text. Now, I, I, mainly it's part because we're Reformed Presbyterian types that I'm making this, this application. But typically, our group, um, if we're to have characteristics within our group, we're, we're Bible people. We love the Scripture. We love the study of the Scripture. We're, we're kind of heady and kind of academic and pretty nerdy and goofy, all right? That's normally our tribe. That's normally our type. And so, you know, do a Bible study. Everybody shows up. Everybody comes. People love to see new things in the Scripture. We love insights. We want to lodge them away, right? That we want to spend time in the Word of God. Now, I hope that you've been around me long enough 
to know I'm not in any way dissing on the study of the Scripture. I'm geeking out right along with you all of the time on the Word of God. But I would, I would suggest that maybe some of our times with the Lord, our so-called quiet times, look a little bit like read some passage of Scripture and tack a prayer on the end before you go. Does it look a little bit like that sometimes? Do you find you can spend more time reading a Scripture and less time talking to God and, com- and communing with Him and actually spending time with the Lord? I think that's often the case for so many of us. In fact, I would say in some sense, Scripture reading, if you can hear me correctly in the way that I'm meaning this, Scripture reading is, it can be a little bit more protective and shielded and prayer is more vulnerable and intimate. That's why it scares us. It's why when we get in a room, we're more than willing to read Scripture, but don't ask me to pray. Because it's almost when we start praying what is known. The trick of our souls is up. We're exposed. And very often we don't have deep communion with the Lord. And it's shown. It's like we're talking to Him, but we really don't have anything to say. We're not really sure how to commune with Him. We have studied about Him, but we've not spent much time with Him. He's not yet become, as it were, as a bosom friend whom we love to just linger in conversation over a cup of coffee with. And listen to what I think we see with Jesus here is is this reality of a man who didn't just merely um, relate to his father distantly through um, an an abstract set of doctrines or or truths or just in the, the words, as it were, of Scripture, but a man who was actually encountering his father personally. He was meeting with the Lord. This is why I, I put in here, when you're alone with God, pray until you meet God. How many times have you prayed? And it just, you know it. You're just mouthing words. You're just checking a box. You're just saying stuff. There is no actual relationship with the Lord that's being cultivated or fostered. In fact, we haven't even thought that we're talking to a human being. Or, excuse me, talking to a divine being. We're talking to a person who is relating to us. When Jesus goes, he is eager to go meet with his heavenly father. He needs to meet with him. And he's praying, as it were, until he meets the Lord. Now, in conclusion, because we've got we to wrap this up. Um, at the end of Jesus' life, at the very end of Jesus' life, we see him praying. I mean, in his earthly life. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't it? And as he's sitting there praying, he's removed himself. He's alone, right? Peter, James, and John have stayed a little ways back. And the rest of the disciples are even further back. He's alone again. He's in a garden, but he's actually in a desolate place. He's in a wilderness. He's there facing, as it were, theologically speaking, the very center of his calling. This is the moment for which he's been called. And he's coming to it right here. And what happens to Peter, James, and John? They fall asleep. They fall asleep. And he says, I want you to watch and pray. And they can't watch and pray. They fall asleep. Why does he want them to watch and pray? He tells us at the end of the Gospel of Mark, so that you will not fall into temptation. That's why he wants us to watch and pray. Isn't that interesting? Temptation to forget, to lose sight, to mission drift. 
that you might not fall into temptation. And he comes back to them and they're asleep. And what does he say to them? Could you not watch with me for an hour? And we all read it and go, an hour? Right? I mean, isn't that what you, I mean, that should be what happens to you. An hour? Like, they couldn't watch with him an hour? You know, when was the last time you prayed an hour? Right? You sat with the Lord and you prayed for an hour. And he's saying, you, you couldn't just watch with me for an hour? Who knows how long we're talking about here that he spent with the Lord? It's an enduring, intimate relationship. It's that moment in your prayer life where you actually prayed and you didn't watch the clock. And it was as if you awoke out of your prayer of sweet communion with the Lord and you couldn't believe how much time had passed. Have you ever gotten lost in that conversation with the person that you love? Where you were hearing from them and you were sharing with them and it was like you were one bolt of cloth woven together and you found yourself after that conversation clarified, strengthened, alive, ready to meet whatever challenges are before you. That's Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He arises out of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what he says? He says, go ahead and get up. My hour has come. He's on mission. He has fortitude. He has strength. He's ready to go to the very heart of his mission. You know what that is? To show you how much he loves you. To show you that he's gone and he's about to pay for all of your prayerlessness. All of the times that you haven't prioritized him. All of the times that you have gotten up in the morning and you've gone about your day like your day is what's most important about the day rather than God. Every time. He, he's going to the mission of the cross in order to pay for all of our lapses in faithfulness. And I would urge upon you, if you meditate on that and begin to pray gratefully to the Lord about that, you know what I think will happen? You'll want to spend more time with Him. Because you will find there is no one on this earth that loves you more than him. On this earth, through the power of the Spirit, he's with you right now. There is no one who loves you more than him. And there is no one who can strengthen you like him. There is no one who is looking out for your best interests more than him. So hush be the crowds and the Simon Peters of our life. Let's get alone with our Heavenly Father. Let's listen to the beloved voice of Jesus and let the groanings of the Holy Spirit unite us to him in love that as he accomplished his mission on the back of prayer, we might do the same. Let's pray to that end right now. Lord in heaven, you know what we need in this regard. Uh, you know the strength that we need to be able to become those who have enduring prayer lives in relationship and connection with you so that we say yes to your mission and we don't drift into everybody, others, everybody else's mission for us. Lord, would you come right now and would you clarify in the minds and the hearts of everybody who's here exactly what they need to hear from this message? Uh, what is the most important thing for them to take away and to begin to put into practice? What new steps of obedience might look like? Let them do so, Lord, in joy and in expectation from this standpoint knowing that though there is guilt in the recognition of our laws, there is not anything that we have done of which he can't rescue us from. And his power and strength, even right now, can give us the greatest course correction we need and get us back on mission. Lord, would you do that right now by the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.